Hey everyone, I'm Brian Hoops and you are listening to Walking Through Fire. Uh, we're going to be revisiting a true crime topic for the story today, and I believe it's one that hasn't gotten its fair share of attention. A couple episodes back, I did a episode called Famous Troops Serial Killer Edition, where for that one I spoke about people who served in the army or in the military in general and then went on to become serial killers. And for this one, originally what I wanted to do was a Famous Troops Mobster Edition. So I started doing preliminary research and I started looking up famous mobsters who were in the military, like Whitey Bulger, Danny Green, Frank Sheeran. But then I remembered there was a story I heard years ago about this guy who was a Vietnam War vet and his name was Mickey Featherstone. For those of you who don't know who Mickey Featherstone is, during the 1970s and 1980s, after he exited the U.S. Army after serving in Vietnam, he served in second in command of a crime organization in the lower west side of Manhattan called the Westies. The neighborhood he ran out of, was they uh, operated out, was called Hell's Kitchen. And uh, they were pretty much known as, they were pretty much established as like the Irish mob. So going throughout this episode, I'm going to be interchangeably using the Westies or the Irish mob without that. But this is, again, just a story that has like not gotten the attention over the years that I feel that it needs because it's so, so crazy. Uh, the more I looked into Featherstone's story, the more I realized that I would have to kind of tell the story of his boss, Jimmy Coonan. And then the more that I looked into Jimmy Coonan, I found out that I would have to do more research into the guy who Jimmy Coonan took over the Westies or the Irish mob from. And his name was Mickey Spillane because Featherstone, Coonan and Spillane, all their stories are intertwined. So in the end, I was just like, fuck it. I'm just going to cover the entire Irish mob of New York City all in one. Now, the Westies themselves can be described from two different perspectives. On one end, they were the last of the classic Irish-American gangsters in New York City who stood stiff against the Italian mob that tried to muscle in on their turf. On the other hand, some people, in the research that I've done, some people would describe the Westies as murderous junkies who acted as a kill squad for the Italian mob. As always, we're going to look at the story from both angles, and you, the listener, in the end can decide. While I don't see this show going on as being a purely true crime uh, podcast, I, again, am going to say that this story shows the rawness and brutality of true crime that was kind of left out uh, from the romantic, romanticized uh, images of contemporary cinema and literature that covers topics like this. Movies like Casino and Goodfellas, they portray this clean-cut image in the 1950s to 70s of, you know, gangsters wearing these high-end suits with slick back hair. But this story itself, as we go on, you'll really kind of see the raw grittiness that organized crime held at the time and that isn't really portrayed in a lot of these uh, mainstream outlets. Now, before we really dig into the history of the organization that would be known as the Westies and the contemporary New York City Irish mob, Let's take a look back at the history of Irish organized crime in New York and Hell's Kitchen as well, because from everything that I gathered, the Irish mob is known as the oldest criminal organization in the United States. 
there's about to be a lot of names and a lot of TV and movie references thrown around at this point. But let's go into a brief history of the Irish mob and New York City as well. It is speculated where the name Hell's Kitchen came from. One source that I looked into said that there is a former food hall, restaurant, cafeteria, whatever you want to call it, in that particular area of the Lower West Side at the turn of the century that was owned by a German immigrant and it was actually named Heil's Kitchen. It is said that it was so popular it would attract customers from all across New York City and some even moved to the neighborhood just to be close to the cafeteria. It was said that people couldn't pronounce the name correctly and would say it was called Hell's Kitchen and the neighborhood slowly took on the name. The other story that I had heard about where Hell's Kitchen name, the name of Hell's Kitchen originated from, is that two NYPD cops, one a veteran that was nicknamed Dutch Fred and his rookie partner looked on as a fistfight turned into a small riot in the Lower West Side neighborhood, which at the time was originally named Clinton. The rookie cop said to the veteran, this place is hell itself, to which the veteran cop Dutch Fred responded, hell's a mild climate, this place is hell's kitchen. Wherever the name came from, New York City pre-1990s was a hell of a different place than we know it as today. We're going to start this story around the 1840s. New York City at the time was seeing an influx of immigrants, primarily from Ireland. But it should be noted that there were other Europeans and other nationalities from across the planet heading there as well. In the 1840s, though, this is when the Irish potato famine occurred in Ireland. The British colonized Ireland, and I'm going to kind of gloss over this, but it's kind of like how we talked about in the last episode, how when Japan overtook uh, Korea and they pretty much set up like a share crop system. This is similar to the same, you know, the same system that Japan established. Uh, the lower class Irish were mostly dependent on the potato crop. A disease amongst the potato crops broke out throughout Ireland. Uh, and in the end, like after the entire potato famine itself was over, 20% of the population of Ireland was dead or had left the country. It had gotten so rough that there were accounts that on the country roads in Ireland, it wouldn't be uncommon to see starved corpses with green stains around their mouth because the lower class Irish had to resort to eating grass from the ground for sustenance. The famine itself was caused by many different reasons and I can't actually go into all of them this episode. Uh, but it did, as I mentioned earlier, make many Irish flee the country. While many resettled across the world in nations such as Argentina and Chile, the bulk of Irish immigrants went to the United States. The majority of these immigrants settled in New York or Boston, with the latter having a historically Irish population to this day. Between the 1840s to the turn of the century and the early 1900s, New York City itself was typically divided by ethnicity. And this was sort of a self-segregated uh, type of deals because some of these people were coming over from, uh, you know, Eastern European countries, Irish neighborhoods, Jewish neighborhoods, uh, Italian neighborhoods, and all of them, you know, had their own traditions, their own customs, their own language that they spoke, and 
they were pretty much just trying to settle in with uh, what they knew at the time as being familiar. New York City during this time in the mid-1800s experienced a population explosion and certain public services such as uh, policing communities became overwhelming. And with this is kind of the birth of gangs in New York. Typically they started as local neighborhood kids who banded together to protect their neighborhood from outsiders. If Italians started shit in Irish neighborhoods, it would be up to pretty much the Irish to kind of get together and fight them off. And this was the same if like the Irish wanted to go stir shit up in a Jewish neighborhood, or if the Italians went to a, you know, like a Polish neighborhood or something like that. It would be on like the local kids to pretty much band together and fight off the outsiders. The Irish mob is considered the oldest organized crime outfit in the United States. And it was during this time in the mid-1800s when newly arriving Irish Americans began to take a foothold in the criminal underworld. This has been partially portrayed in the movie The Gangs of New York. There was an actual gang called the Bowery Boys, which was a nativist pro-American gang that clashed with Irish immigrant gangs, such as the Dead Rabbits. The Dead Rabbits, much like the gangs of New York, rose to prominence amongst the Irish street gangs. Their most famous leader was named John Old Smoke Morrissey. He was a prize fighter, which is an old-timey term for bare-knuckle boxer, who later became a representative for the 5th District in New York City. Hearing the name Big Smoke because it said he went to a tavern to collect on a debt that was owed to him, and this led to a fistfight between Morrissey and the guy who owed him money, and Morrissey got pinned against a potbelly stove that was warming the room. This caused smoke to billow from the back of Morrissey's pants and earned him the nickname Old Smoke. Much like in the gangs of New York, Morrissey and the Dead Rabbits developed a rivalry with the American nativist gang, the Bowery Boys, who were headed up by a guy named William Poole. He was known in real life as Bill the Butcher, much like in the movie. The Bowery Boys, much like other nativist gangs, harassed Irish immigrants and Irish neighborhoods as well. Morrissey challenged the Butcher to a one-on-one -on -one fight, and it was very, very anticlimactic from what I could find. Much like the ending of the actual movie, The Gangs in New York, Apparently, the fight went on for a few seconds, but Bill the Butcher threw Morrissey to the ground and beat him mercilessly. Uh, to be fair, though, Morrissey was like 22 at the time, and he was about 10 years younger than Bill the Butcher. But a few days later, one of Morrissey's men in the Dead Rabbits shot and killed Bill the Butcher. After the murder of Bill the Butcher... And as I mentioned earlier, Morrissey ended up going into politics. He served with the U.S. House of Representatives. This was an uncommon at the time for the political machines to have someone who was close to the criminal underworld. Morrissey ended up passing away in 1878. The first generation immigrant gangs were unique in that the bulk of their members participated in gang activities, mostly on Sundays because this was during the time of the Gilded Age in the United States, and barons of industry such as John D. Rockefeller were known for having 12-plus-hour work days, and 
he believed in only giving his employees one day off a week so that they, in Rockefeller's mind, wouldn't go home and like get drunk and beat their families and spend all their money on booze. This was a fairly narrow-minded way of thinking, but Rockefeller thought he was doing society and, moreover, the poor a favor by working his employees to the point where all they wanted to do was just go home and rest up for the next day of work. With the death of John Morrissey, the dead rabbits slowly faded out, and this was common amongst Irish gangs at the time in New York City. Usually they would get a decent following centered around a few key figures, and then said key figures would either get killed, go to jail, or get tired of the gang life and just move on. However, Prohibition changed a lot of this. Italian mobster Charles Luciano was wanting at the time in the 1920s to bridge the gap between different ethnicities and the criminal underworld of New York. He believed if Irish, Jewish, Italians, and all other underworld figures worked together and drew lines in different neighborhoods and different uh, criminal trades, that it would benefit everyone. And he was, for the most part, right. The key figure of the Irish in the criminal underworld at this time in New York City was Oni Madden. Madden was born to Irish parents in the United Kingdom around 1891 and immigrated to the United States in 1901. He joined a pickpocket gang in New York City called the Gopher Gang, which got their name because members would meet in basements and cellars across the Lower West Side of Manhattan. Madden went on to acting as the muscle for a taxi business that would run Canadian whiskey to New York City during Prohibition. And then Madden went on to operating a very popular nightclub in Harlem called the Cotton Club. Madden had peers while he was up and coming in the bootlegging club owning game. And one of them was a German-Jewish immigrant. And his name was Dutch Schultz. Dutch Schultz was... From all accounts I read, he was kind of a kind of a garbage person. I read that even by the time, you know, in the or by the time standards in the 1930s, he had very very poor hygiene. He wouldn't brush his teeth, wouldn't comb his hair, and he said something along the lines of like he wouldn't spend more than like four dollars on a suit. Which which at the time, if you wanted to try to be an established person and you know, the criminal underworld, the the fashion of the time was, you know, you wore, like, the nicest suits possible, but he just decided to walk around in these, like, cheap suits with, like, food in his teeth and his hair all unkempt and whatnot. But Dutch Schultz employed a young Irish hoodlum to carry out murders and kidnappings for him. His name was Vincent Call, later nicknamed Mad Dog Call. Call was young and hot-headed, and as he more worked for Dutch Schultz, he more wanted to break away from him and start his own crew. Schultz and Madden saw Call as a threat to the security of their organizations. In a lot of mainstream media, underworld figures come off as boastful and carrying out you know, crimes that they do with this certain bravado. But this is quite the opposite of how these guys actually operate in real life. Mobsters typically want to keep things as quiet as possible to not draw the attention of law enforcement. 
people like John Gotti are the reason why the Italian mob isn't really a thing anymore because, you know, I want to I wanna defy the system type of attitude and how much he was willing to get involved with the media. Cole drew too much attention with his brashness. At one point, Cole kidnapped an associate of Madden's. His name was Frenchie Demange. And he held him for ransom, which stirred a bunch of shit up with Ma- with Madden. Schultz was pissed because he was associated with Cole. And Cole went on and attempted to kidnap an associate of Schultz, who was named Joseph Rao. During the kidnapping, Cole and his crew arrived in front of the tenement house in which they believed Rao was staying. When Cole's crew exited their uh, their cars at the time, they had shotguns and submachine guns, and there was a slip of the trigger, and a, a kid died. A kid was shot and killed by either Vincent Cole or someone who was in his crew. After the five-year-old was killed, this drew a lot of attention to the criminal underworld of New York City. The Mafia, Madden, Schultz, and everyone was tired of Cole's shit. So, at this point, the Italians were rising in numbers and in influence in politics, as well as other government organizations. So, Schultz and Madden, in a gesture to save their own ass and also in good faith to the Italians, put a $50,000 hit out on Cole. Cole, for the killing of the child during the uh, botched kidnapping was charged with murder. Eventually he was able to have the charges dropped and Cole, he ended up walking free, but he still had to go into hiding. Before the charges were officially dropped, Cole was approached by a man named Salvatore Marizano, who had been recently named the head of the Bonanno crime family to take and uh, what Marizano wanted was for Cole to take out Charles Luciano. As mentioned previously, Luciano wanted there to be dialogue between different crime factions across New York City, as well as the country as well. He kind of wanted to unite organized crime uh, nationally in the United States. But Marizano was a part of the Mustache Pete's, or the old guard of the Italian mob, that believed it should be solely the Sicilians that are in control of the criminal underworld of the United States. Luciano was tipped off about the hit from Tommy Lucchese, and Luciano sent four hitmen from a Jewish mob kill-for-hire organization called Murder, Inc., who ended up killing Marizano. Cole was in deep shit at this point. Luciano knew Cole was hired to take him out. Luciano also knew that Schultz and Madden were connected to Cole and put the pressure on them to take care of him. Cole was supposedly hiding out in an apartment in the Bronx when four gunmen stormed the apartment in February of 1932 and killed two of Cole's men. Their names were Patsy Del Greco and Fioro Basil. Cole had become infamous for extorting well-known gangsters, and because of his unpredictable behavior, they typically gave in. Some accounts position Cole as being a legitimate threat to be taken seriously. Others, from what I read, 
seemed like Cole was more just a pain in the ass. By some accounts, he, he came off as just like a kid annoying his parents into giving them what they want. Cole extorted money, though, from Madden and Schultz. Usually the dollar amount that Cole demanded wasn't too large to greatly affect Madden or Schultz. Schultz's uh, operation, but it was enough just to kind of keep Cole at bay to not do crazy shit to draw attention to their operations. A good part of Cole's crew had been picked off at this point, and later in February of 1932, the same month when his crew was picked off at, Cole entered a drugstore phone booth on 8th and 23rd in Manhattan. Cole made a phone call to Oni Madden and demanded $50,000, and if Madden did not pay, Cole threatened that he would kidnap his brother-in-law. Now, supposedly, this is kind of the story that I found that I pieced together, because there's like a few different ways that this is told, but supposedly, Madden was expecting a phone call from Vincent Cole. And Madden kept him on the line and slowly kind of divulged information from Vincent Cole to figure out where his location was. And then in the meantime, Madden sent out a hit squad and stayed on the phone with Vincent Cole until four men entered the drugstore that Cole was at. And with Thompson submachine guns, hosed down Vincent Cole while he was on the phone with Oni Madden. In the end, 15 bullets were removed from Vincent Cole's body. After the death of Vincent Cole, Oni Madden was arrested for a parole violation. Madden, after he was released, received a lot more attention and harassment from the NYPD. <clears throat> so Madden, at the suggestion of Charles Luciano, retired to Hot Springs, Arkansas, where he ran a hospital-slash-spa resort, which kind of at times acted as like a, uh, a getaway for the mob, and... Oni Madden lived his life out there until the 1960s where he just passed away of natural causes, I believe. And that's like the rarest way a lot of these mobsters live out their older years. Usually they're either like assassinated or they spend the rest of their life in jail. Madden had a protege for the Hell's Kitchen Irish, though. His name was Huey Mulligan, and he was born in 1911. Mulligan got his upstart during Prohibition driving a beer truck for Oni Madden and gained a reputation around the city far and wide amongst with police officers, other mobsters, and eventually he became a racketeer. For those of you who don't know what racketeering is, from my understanding, I'm going to kind of explain some of these different things. Is I feel like some of these like crimes that people partake in, you hear in like mob movies all the time, but nobody really actually knows what they are. So, rackets are essentially a collection of uh, illegal operations. So, for example, Mulligan had a group of bookies that reported to him in Hell's Kitchen, so that was considered him running the quote-unquote bookmaking racket. Bookmaking and bookies were guys who would place illegal sports bets for people. They typically had an established location they would work out of, like a bar or barbershop. The bookie would collect money from people and then give a portion to Mulligan or whoever ran that neighborhood as like a uh, tax of sorts. Mulligan also established control of the numbers racket in Hell's Kitchen. Numbers and running numbers is, from everything I could find, the predecessor of the modern day lottery. It wasn't like going down to the store and buying a ticket. The numbers game varied from neighborhood to neighborhood, but generally it went like this. People who wanted to play would go to their local numbers guy or their local bookie. 
and give them however much they wanted to bet. Uh, could have been a nickel, could have been as high as $100, it was however much people wanted to put in. The numbers guy later that day would draw three random numbers, and this also kind of varied by neighborhood. So the one that I found for Hell's Kitchen and the research that I looked into was Mulligan and the bookies would take the last digit of the total outcome of the win, place, or show recorded from local dog tracks of that day. So for example, if the show outcome was at $52, the place outcome was at $692, and the win was at $1,502, what Mulligan and his crew would do would take the last digit. So in this case, it would, the number would be 222 that would be drawn. And if somebody got that, which rarely anyone ever did from what I could find, then they would win the pot. Mulligan also had significant influence over the labor unions. Hell's Kitchen was located on the Manhattan waterfront of the Lower West Side. The biggest union that Mulligan was able to control was the Longshoremen's, the International Longshoremen's Association and various other lo uh, local construction companies. The bulk of Mulligan's reign, if you could call it that, was through the pro Prohibition period and into the about mid to late 1950s. Mulligan established these kind of quote-unquote quieter illegal operations because after Prohibition, the underworld economy pretty much tanked because a lot of it was dependent on the bars and dance halls that the bootleggers ran. So, and a lot of these mobsters were convicted felons afterwards or, you know, had done some kind of horrible crime in their life to where they couldn't get a liquor license. So, Mulligan just decided to run these little smaller operations. From what I could find, Mulligan didn't pull off any super violent crimes in his life. He more just established a base of criminal operations in Hell's Kitchen. Mulligan really wasn't a tough guy or a brawler like the Irish gangsters before him. Guys like One Lung Curran or Red Rocks Farrell or Baboon Connolly, who I'm going to remind you were real people and not characters on a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Mulligan was described as being overweight, red-faced, and wore black horn-rimmed glasses. The significance of the Mulligan era in Hell's Kitchen was more to keep the Irish criminal operations in the neighborhood. Mulligan's operation thrived post-World War II, but it was around 1958 where Mulligan decided to retire and moved out to a suburban neighborhood in Queens. During his time in Hell's Kitchen, Mulligan took a shine to a young Irish teen named Mickey Spillane, who would ultimately take over Hell's Kitchen on Mulligan's retirement. Born in 1934, Spillane was a neighborhood kid who would go on to quite the criminal career in his young life. Spillane's first big crime is when he robbed a Manhattan movie theater in broad daylight. A cop tried stopping Spillane, and when Spillane refused to stop running, the cop shot him. Spillane was 16 years old when he got shot, and he ended up living. With Mulligan retiring, Spillane began taking over his operations in Hell's Kitchen and on the docks of the Lower West Side. Where Mulligan lacked in more aggressive and violent crimes, Spillane made up for. Spillane revisited a business of the pre-Prohibition days and the Prohibition era, which was known as the extortion game. Extortion in these days was when a mobster would kidnap someone and hold them for ransom for a few days. Typically, the victims were unaffiliated with the criminal underworld, but sometimes you did see mobsters kidnap guys with other gangs or criminal organizations because that 
typically led to a lot higher of a payout than a local business owner. And also, it just kind of kept them in good graces with the neighborhood. When Spillane began kidnapping and extorting local people, this is where his rivalry in Hell's Kitchen would begin. One of the victims of Spillane's extortion scams was a mild-mannered accountant-slash-tax consultant named John Coonan. Coonan was taken to Spillane's White House Club, where he was pistol-whipped and beaten by Spillane and his men for days. Coonan was released but was visibly shaken and never was the same after the kidnapping. Coonan's son, James, or Jimmy as he was known by the neighborhood kids, took a personal oath that day. He swore to himself that he would never be a victim and he would make it his life mission to fuck with Mickey Spillane as much as possible. Coonan was fueled with thoughts of overtaking Hell's Kitchen from Spillane, but he knew at the time he was too young, so he had to calculate his plan very carefully. By 1960, Mickey Spillane was married to Maureen McManus. The McManus family had deep connections and ties with the Midtown Democratic Club. Her brother, Spillane's now brother-in-law, was to take the club over from their father. The older people in Hell's Kitchen loved the marriage between Spillane and McManus. Spillane and McManus made a handsome couple, but it was a reminder to the old days when gangsters and politicians rubbed elbows and the traditional Irish of Hell's Kitchen saw this as a giant victory. Also in 1960, the United States elected John F. Kennedy as the first Irish-American president, the first Irish Catholic president, which was huge at the time. This tightened the bond in Hell's Kitchen because Irish-Americans across New York City and Irish-Americans across the country were now, you know, considering themselves digging their roots further into the United States. Uh, racial politics and the school of thought around it at this time period is a fairly complex topic, and uh, I'm not going to get into it deep on here just because it's something that I'm not very well versed in. But many Irish began to leave Hell's Kitchen to partake in the post-World War II uh, suburban boom. So again, this solidified the bond for all those who stayed in Hell's Kitchen. Mickey Spillane had built a reputation for himself in Hell's Kitchen. To the straight-laced crowd, he was charming, donated to the local Catholic church every month. Uh, when someone from Hell's Kitchen was sick in the hospital, Spillane would send a card and flowers. And when Thanksgiving came around, Spillane was known to give turkeys out to families in need. He garnered an image of the Robin Hood gangster, which led to a lot of Hell's Kitchen residents to turning their heads to his underworld activities. By the early to mid-60s, Spillane's luck was beginning to turn. Drugs were becoming the cash cow amongst the New York City underworld. Spillane did not want that kind of element around Hell's Kitchen. And from what I could find, it seemed like he didn't have enough weight to carry it into other neighborhoods without facing static from other crews. Spillane, at this point, was the last Irish figure with drawn turf in New York City. The Westies under Mickey Spillane in total numbered around 75, and Spillane had to continue truces with the much larger Italian mob, or La Cosa Nostra, or the Five Families. Now, although the Five Families were all separate organizations, Together, they all still numbered in thousands between made men and associates, and those are like the lowest-ranking people in those criminal organizations. Also at this time, Spillane had another problem that he had to deal with, a coming-to-age Jimmy Coonan. By 1966, the Spillane-Coonan War was in full swing. 
Kunin was about 19 years old at the time, and Spillane was in his early 30s, around 32 to 33. Kunin was building a reputation as an up-and-comer who challenged Spillane at every turn. Spillane represented the old days where gangsters could carry out crimes with a degree of quote-unquote respect and still maintain good relationships with the neighborhood people and keep Hell's Kitchen interests in mind. By the late 1960s, though, a lot of the middle-class Irish of the post-World War II era were starting to move out of Hell's Kitchen. Tenements and old shops were becoming barren and dilapidated. Spillane owned and operated the White House Bar and would hold what they would call daily court there. Residents of the old Hell's Kitchen would show up and lay out their grievances to Spillane. Some of the residents would talk about how the neighborhood was going downhill and wasn't the same anymore. Someone would ask Spillane to help them out because a relative was in the hospital and they couldn't afford their bills. Someone asked for cash because they may have been robbed by a teenager a few days ago. Spillane would help out where he could, but he knew he didn't carry the weight of his predecessors such as Oni Madden. The old Irish gangsters had political push, and Spillane, even though married to the daughter of the Democratic Party of Manhattan, couldn't swing that type of influence. T.J. English, the author of one of my main sources, a book called The Westies, said something along the lines of if he had to describe Hell's Kitchen at this time through John F. Kennedy, Mickey Spillane was the equivalent to the Kennedy family in the quote-unquote Camelot years, while Jimmy Coonan was JFK slumped over in a Cadillac in Texas with a blood-soaked Jackie O hanging over him. Coonan was outright on the grudge he held against Spillane. He was seen around Hell's Kitchen talking shit and taunting Spillane when he could. There's stories that Coonan and Spillane would start arguing on the streets and would pull out guns and start taking shots at each other. No one was ever hurt or killed. It was like watching those gunfights in that show Trailer Park Boys. There was another incident, though, where Spillane and his right-hand man, Edward the Butcher Kamizgi, who would later to go on to align with Jimmy Coonan, both Spillane and Kamizgi were walking to a dice game when Coonan, on top of a building across the street from them, opened fire on Spillane and Kamizgi with a submachine gun. Things like this reminded Spillane that the younger Coonan was a force to be reckoned with. Coonan was steadily building a crew. His main go-to guy was a man who was close to 15 years older than him at the time. His name was Eddie Sullivan. Sullivan was a bum and from what I could find was kind of an asshole who held a grudge against Spillane because there was an incident where Sullivan got too drunk at the White House bar that was owned by Mickey Spillane. And Mickey Spillane and his brother Charlie beat the shit out of Sullivan and threw him out. Again, Sullivan was kind of a dumbass, but Coonan kept him close because he knew if he needed Sullivan to pull the trigger, he would do it if need be. There had been a rumor going around this time in 1966 that Mickey Spillane had hired hitmen from either Boston or Texas or somewhere from out of town to take out Coonan and his newly forming crew. One night, Eddie Sullivan ran into two guys at a bar called the Pussycat Lounge. Their names were Jerry Morales and Charles Kemmelstein, who had met earlier that day at a spa and just decided to go out and have some drinks and dinner together and go out and look for women. Sullivan had never seen them around and grew suspicious of them because one thing I should have noted before is that Sullivan was incredibly paranoid and a violent guy. 
Sullivan pulled Morales aside and started talking to him. Morales had recently moved to New York City from Los Angeles, and he mentioned that to Sullivan. Sullivan left the bar and came back with a police badge and a gun and told Kennelstein and Morales to come with him. Kennelstein and Morales were pushed into a car driven by Jimmy Coonan and taken to Queens where Morales was shot and killed. Kennelstein was also shot, but he ends up surviving. Coonan and Sullivan are arrested as suspects, and during the trial, Kennelstein acts as a witness and points out Sullivan and Coonan. Sullivan already had two felonies, and New York at the time had the th three strikes law, which I, I don't know if they still have to this day. Uh, but basically, he committed two felonies, and if you get a third one, then they immediately give you a life sentence in prison. And that is exactly what Sullivan got. This was Coonan's first major offense, and he was sentenced to only five to ten years. So we're at the point in the story where we kind of have to go and introduce a new character who plays a pinnacle role in all of this. His name is Mickey Featherstone. Featherstone was a Hell's Kitchen neighborhood kid, and at about 19 years old during this time in 1966, Featherstone enlisted in the U.S. Army. Featherstone came from a military family line and wanted to follow in tradition. Vietnam was starting to escalate, and Featherstone saw this as a way for him to serve in combat. Featherstone went to boot camp in Fort Lewis, Washington, and shortly afterwards was sent to the Viet or to Vietnam. The thing about a service in Vietnam is that Featherstone, for some reason, kept getting pushed off to administrative duties. I couldn't find an exact reason why this was, but he was assigned as a clerk to various special forces groups. He never served in any actual combat, and it was noted that he spent his days outside of his work on duty, getting drunk and sleeping with Vietnamese hookers. I did find one very detailed story about Mickey Featherstone's time in the army, and I'll just go ahead and say this, it's about to get pretty graphic. One night, Mickey met up with a bunch of army combat medics and got drunk with them. When he passed out, they stripped him naked and they gave him a circumcision. A few days later, Mickey met with his brother, who was returning from combat as an army ranger, and they went to a bar in Vietnam and got drunk. After drinking for a little bit, Mickey and his brother, they went to a brothel where Mickey's brother paid for a prostitute for Mickey Featherstone. When Featherstone was alone with the girl, his stitches burst when he got a bone and ran out crying, which, I mean, honestly, who could blame the guy for that? I think after the circumcision incident, Featherstone slowly developed the same mindset that Jimmy Coonan had after he saw his father get kidnapped and that he would not be a victim. Featherstone wasn't a big guy. He was about 5'9 and 130 pounds, so he wasn't physically intimidating. And I think Featherstone knew this, and later on in the story you'll see that he is pretty quick to use a gun when he has the opportunity to. Featherstone was discharged from the army in 1969. He had trouble readjusting to society as many veterans do. He drank a lot and had developed a reckless personality. Featherstone on two different incidents killed two people in total in temperate outbursts. In both incidents, he was only sentenced to a couple of months in a Veterans Administration mental health hospital. By 1970, Jimmy Coonan is released from prison. 
Coonan worked a few dead-end jobs and slowly creates a loan shark business. And Featherstone, at the same time, was, as we mentioned before, was bouncing in and out of VA mental hospitals. Coonan and Featherstone knew who each other were from the neighborhood all their lives and never really interacted with each other. But their paths finally crossed later in 1970. Mickey got into an altercation with a bouncer at a bar named Milton. I couldn't find his last name. All I could find was just the same as Milton. Milton found a drunk southerner named Linwood Willis and had him antagonize Featherstone and his friends. Featherstone was a hell of a lot smaller than Willis, so Featherstone left the bar and ran down the street to another bar, and inside he found Jimmy Coonan. Featherstone motioned for Coonan, and they went to the bathroom. And again, they, they knew who each other were, and none of them had any like problems with each other in the past, so I mean, they were, for the most part, on good terms. Featherstone asked Coonan if he had a gun, and without hesitation, Coonan gained gave Featherstone the gun that he had in his belt. Featherstone returned to the bar and asked Linwood Willis to step outside with him. When Featherstone and Linwood got outside, Featherstone pulled out the gun and shot Willis in the face. This uh, kind of acted as a bonding moment in a strange way between Mickey Featherstone and Jimmy Coonan. But... Coonan now knew that Featherstone was capable of pulling the trigger if need be. During this time in the 1970s, Coonan was slowly gaining influence on Spillane's crew. Coonan was seen hanging out with Ed the Butcher Kamizgi, who acted as number two for Spillane. Kamizgi was from Hell's Kitchen and got his nickname the Butcher because he was trained as a butcher while serving time in prison. He would later on use this skill to dismember bodies of his murder victims. Kamizgi went on to teach Kunin how to dismember bodies, and this became Kunin's preferred method of disposal. There's one story that goes that Kunin killed a guy who couldn't pay his debt. Kamizgi and Kunin chopped up the body, but Kunin saved the hands of the victim and stored them in a freezer. Kunin kept the hands because... His idea was that he could later use them to plant fingerprints at crime scenes so he would throw the police off of his trail. Like, one of his ideas was to wrap the severed hand around a pistol and kill someone and just be able to throw the gun away. So it was also around this time in the 70s when Coonan was starting his own loan shark operation and he got into contact with a guy named Ruby Stein and Danny Grillo. Stein was at the time the most prominent loan shark in New York City and probably the world. Stein had deep ties with the Gambino crime family and Grillo was a made man in the Gambino crime family, specifically under Roy DeMio's crew. It was also at this time when Featherstone and Coonan began hanging out frequently. One story that brought the two closer together was a time when Featherstone, Coonan, Comiskey, and some local Puerto Ricans were playing cards at a bar in Hell's Kitchen. Featherstone got really drunk and smoked hash that the Puerto Ricans had bought and stumbled into a back room and passed out drunk and stoned. When he awoke the next morning and walked out to the bar, he saw that the place had been torn apart. Featherstone saw blood all over the pool table and Coonan and Comiskey were covered in it as well. Featherstone had no recollection of the night before 
but he was told by Comiskey that Featherstone had flipped out and killed one of the Puerto Ricans. But I think that's kind of bullshit. I think there was more to the story and there was just kind of holes in it. Also going on in the 1970s at this time, the Jacob J. Javits Center was to begin construction in Hell's Kitchen. Organized crime across the city knew this would be a huge opportunity to expand their business. There was an uneasy relationship between Spillane and the Italians, but the Gambino crime family continued to pressure Spillane into allowing them to operate in Hell's Kitchen. Spillane pushed the Italians off, and Roy DeMio responded by hiring a freelance Irish hitman named Joseph Mad Dog Sullivan. DeMio estimated Spillane's crew to be about 75 people. Of those 75, Sullivan and other assassins took out 74. Spillane himself was killed in 1977. At the time, he had moved out to the suburbs in Queens when he was lured outside one night and was shot in the middle of the street. Edward Comiskey was killed shortly before Spillane in August of 1976 when Sullivan would enter the Sunbright Bar and shot Comiskey in the back of the head. The threat of Spillane's interference in Coonan's operations, from what I could find, had been dead way before the late 70s and it almost seemed pointless to take out Spillane but the Italians wanted to prove a point and further solidify their relationship with Coonan. With Spillane out of the picture, Hell's Kitchen was now in the control of Jimmy Coonan. He wanted to deepen his operations further and looked towards Ruby Stein's loan sharking business. Coonan decided the Westies would take it over, but also looked at it as a point to bring in the Italians. Coonan wanted to do this as a way to further strengthen the relationships between the Westies and the Italians. In May 1977, Ruby Stein was asked to the Aeon Club by Coonan and Billy Beatty, one of the newer members of the Westies. In the bar waiting were other members of the Westies, including Mickey Featherstone. Ruby Stein was seated at a table and shortly afterwards, Danny Grillo appeared from the back room with a machine gun and shot Ruby Stein. Coonan took Stein's black book, which had all of his debts listed, and that now belonged to the Westies. Coonan then took out his pistol and shot Stein's dead body. He then passed the gun around to the other people in the room, including Grillo, and everyone took a shot at Stein's dead body. The significance was to implicate everyone in the crime. Coonan dismembered Stein's body and disposed of it in Queens. Stein's torso would be found days later because Coonan forgot to stab Stein in the lungs so that the torso would sink. As we mentioned before, Ruby Stein was well known amongst the Italian mob. And Paul Castellano, who at the time was in charge of the Gambino crime family, wanted to have a sit-down with Jimmy Coonan to ensure that the Irish could be controlled or at least monitored by the larger Italian mobs. In February of 1978, Castellano arranged for a sit-down to occur at a small Italian restaurant in Brooklyn. Coonan was skeptical. He, much like Spillane and Irish gangsters before him, had very little trust in the Italians. Coonan inherited the relationship, much as Spillane did when he took over from Mulligan, but Coonan knew the Italians vastly numbered the Irish and had a lot more connections. 
Coonan agreed to the meeting, but he had a plan of his own. He would have Featherstone and other members of the Westies hide out in a bar nearby the restaurant he was to meet Castellano at. Coonan gave them a designated time, which was about two hours after after the meeting started with Castellano, and if the Westies hit squad did not receive a phone call from Coonan, the instructions were to storm the restaurant and kill every person inside. So the day of the meeting, Featherstone and the other Westies were in the bar getting drunk and lost track of time when they realized that they had not received the phone call. Featherstone and the other Irish started arming up and leaving the bar when, at the last minute, they got the phone call from Coonan and the plan was called off. Had Featherstone and the Westies pulled this plan off and, let's say, survived, this would have definitely been the ultimate end to the West Side Irish mob. The Castellano meeting with uh, Coonan went over pretty well. Castellano just basically told Coonan that they needed to stop acting like cowboys. Castellano would also tell Coonan that if he was going to do anything big to clear it through Roy DeMio, and DeMio acted as the Westies contact in the Italian mob. After the Castellano meeting, Coonan had moved his family out of Hell's Kitchen and into the suburbs of northern New Jersey. This was the most prosperous period for the Westies under Coonan. Coonan began dressing in expensive suits and started paying a lot more attention to his appearance. There, from here started a rift between Featherstone and Coonan. Featherstone, though, thought Coonan was trying to impress the Italians more than he was concerned about the Hell's Kitchen Irish. Featherstone was worried that the Westies were more becoming an armed hit squad for the Italians than protecting their own neighborhood. In 1979, Coonan and Featherstone went to the Plaka Bar, where they ran into Harold Whitey Whitehead. Coonan knew Whitey loosely, and the two did not like each other because Whitey supposedly was talking shit about Coonan's brother. Coonan confronted Whitey, and they began arguing. Bobby Huggard a member of the Westies, broke up the argument and offered to Whitey to smoke a joint with him in the bathroom. While they were in the bathroom smoking a joint, Coonan walked in and shot Whitey. This event, while it seems menial, is actually one of the main beginnings to the uncrumbling of the Westies as a gang. Coonan was arrested, but ultimately wasn't convicted with murder, but rather unlawful possession of a firearm and was sentenced to about five years. And at the same time, Mickey Featherstone was also locked up for using fake currency while at a massage parlor. So at this point, the Westies, both of their leaders, are in prison. Featherstone, while in prison, made it public that he was losing faith in Jimmy Coonan and was out to dethrone him from leadership in the Westies. Featherstone had some backdoor meetings with contacts he had made in the Italian mob, and this is who he kind of vented to during this time. Coonan and Featherstone were both released from prison around 1984. It was upon his release when Coonan was tipped off by a contact in the Italian mob that Featherstone was starting to plot against him. Paul Castellano was killed in 1985, and John Gotti took over from him. Gotti supposedly met with Coonan at one point, but overall didn't really give a shit about who controlled the Westies. Gotti was the most powerful mobster in the country at the time, 
and didn't really care about who ran the Lower West Side neighborhood. Coonan decided that he wasn't going to kill Featherstone, being that they were from the same neighborhood, but he wanted Featherstone out of the picture. Coonan wanted to frame Featherstone for a murder so that Featherstone would be arrested and sent to prison for the rest of his life. Back in 1977, a former member of the Westies named John Buchan was murdered. Everyone suspected it was another Hell's Kitchen resident named Michael Holly because right after the murder, Holly fled town. But around 1985, Michael Holly finally moved back to Hell's Kitchen. The plan Coonan came up with was to murder Holly and have Featherstone take the fall. Coonan enlisted the help of John Buchan's brother, Billy Buchan, who was more than happy to avenge his brother's life. This is where the plan turns sort of cartoonish. Coonan had Billy Buchan wear a blonde wig and a fake mustache in order to look more like Mickey Featherstone. The Westies tracked down and figured out the daily routine of Mike Holly. On April 25th, 1985, Mike Holly was walking down the street and a car pulled up and a man stepped out with a pistol that had a silencer attached to it. The man from the car shot and killed Holly in broad daylight, then ran away. Witnesses on the scene gave a description that matched mostly with Mickey Featherstone, and Featherstone was subsequently arrested. In 1986, Featherstone was handed a guilty plea and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Ironically, this was the only murder conviction that actually stuck to Featherstone, because remember, he killed two people earlier and only did a couple months in mental hospitals and got out. Featherstone was convinced he had been set up by Coonan and the Westies. Featherstone reached out to the prosecutor of New York City at the time and agreed to rat out the other members of his former crew. Featherstone's wife, Sissy, helped her incarcerated husband. She agreed to wear a wire. Sissy met with Billy Buchan and got him on tape admitting that he wore a wig and killed Holly in order to frame her husband. It was also a part of Featherstone's plea deal that he would have to provide testimony against the Westies. Featherstone was released into the Federal Witness Protection Program in 1986. In late 1987, Featherstone took the stand for about four weeks and gave very, very implicit details on his activities with Coonan and the Westies. This is really when the Westies fell apart. All the members started turning on each other. In 1988, Coonan was sentenced to 60 years in prison with a few other members. Other members such as Bill Beatty went into the witness protection program. And you can actually find an interview he did in the late 90s that's pretty entertaining. It's on YouTube, and you can blatantly tell that he is wearing a fake beard and sunglasses. The Westies tried to continue on in Hell's Kitchen. They really never recovered due to things like uh, gentrification in New York City at the time when Rudy Giuliani took over. So the Westies and you know their base of operations in Hell's Kitchen kind of just faded out into existence. Uh, Serbian-American named Bosco Ran Rajanojic tried leading the West season in the 90s, but he ended up getting arrested, and I think he just ended up returning to Serbia just to not have to deal with U.S. prison. 
One interesting thing that came about from the Serbian Bosco Radonjic and his short time leading the Westies is I read something that like the plot of Grand Theft Auto 4 is loosely based on him taking over the Irish gang. So, I mean, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. But outside of that, that was that's it for the Westies. I found something else in 2012. There were two Irish Americans in Manhattan that got arrested for smuggling for trying to smuggle weed into the country, and the press claimed that it might be a resurgence of the gang, but I don't think really anything came out of it. The Irish mob and gangs have kind of stopped being a thing in the US for the most part. I think the only place where they might still have a strong presence is somewhere like Boston. But outside of that, I don't think they really have a strong presence. But, yeah. Thanks for listening. And, I mean, this has so far been my most researched episode. And sorry it took me so long to get this out there. Uh, But I just, you know, I wanted to do some, some deep research on something like that. And, I mean, there's... A lot that I glossed over. And if you're interested in reading more about this topic, I would highly recommend uh, the book that I read for this called The Westies by TJ English. And he also had a really, really good interview on Joe Rogan that you can find on YouTube. So, yeah. Thanks for listening. I'm going to try to go from here on out. It is January 8th. I'm recording this. Uh, so from here on out, I'm going to try to do a bi-weekly episode that I'll be releasing on every sun, every other Sunday. So just be on the lookout for that. Go like the Facebook page. We're also on Instagram. And again, thank you for listening to Walking Through Fire. My name is Brian Hoops.